Hello and welcome to Noise Creators Podcast, Episode 9. I'm here this week with Seth Henderson. Seth's an awesome dude who has a studio out in Crown Point, Indiana, which is kind of like a Chicago suburb. You probably know him because he's worked with groups like Real Friends, Knuckle Puck, The Graduate, and Rarity, Bonfires. He's also done some other stuff that you might not know, like, you know, he's even worked with The Devil Wears Prada. I think this is a really awesome interview, and Seth really gives a great insight into what it's like to work with him, and you can just hear his passion exude in this episode. So, if you like what you hear, check out Seth's profile on Noise Creators and browse through his uh, Spotify playlist, get to know what he does. We have tons of cool stuff up there with him. And yes, enjoy this uh, interview. I think it was pretty awesome. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones... We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. Thanks for being here with us today. Psyched to finally talk to you. So what's the chain you're using for recording your voice today? Okay, so currently I am hooked up with a Shure KSM44 for my vocals going through a my Avalon 737 Pre and then just uh, into the board. Just a, a touch of EQ and compression on the on the Avalon. Well, well done. Taking even recording your podcast voice seriously. Absolutely. Nice. So tell me about your background in music. Okay, well, I actually started out at a relatively young age. I um, I played music starting in like third, fourth grade. My dad was heavy into like classical guitar, and that kind of influenced me into just playing playing some music. I started out jamming on drums, um, and my identical twin brother and I actually both played drums at the same time. And then, wow, that must have been a sight. I bet you those pictures are great. Not not only was it a headache in the house, but we quickly realized that we both can't be in a band and play the same instrument. So. I veered off of that and uh, actually picked up a bass, which led to guitar. From then, started kind of jamming with uh, some friends. Doing, we started our own uh, little cover band. So you know, through middle school and high school, we would just play parties and play for friends and uh, do little small things here and there. And honestly, that was that was so much fun. And from that, ended up obviously skewing into starting your own band and um, writing original music and taking it from there. And from that point, you know, I, I kept jamming with my brother all along. Obviously, since he's my brother, we ended up starting the band together, which was our old band, uh, Asteria. We kind of just started doing original music. and. So what type of stuff was that? Uh, it was kind of um, 
2005 kind of pop punk, like Take It Back Sunday and Armor for Sleep and kind of uh, that that whole realm of music when that was also known as pre MySpace Invasion. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, from that point, it was it was great. We started taking that very seri- seriously. Like that's what we wanted to do. And um, from there is actually where I kind of branched into recording because we couldn't we couldn't afford. I'm sure just like so many people, uh, we couldn't afford to go to some some professional and have it uh, you know spend thousands and thousands of dollars on stuff that we didn't even know how we didn't even know how to record really. So that experience wasn't even really on the table. So that ended up branching into um, starting to do my own recordings and failing at that miserably at, at first and taking it from there, then going to a local guy. Um, and, you know, from that point, finally learning so much enough to actually end up getting a small time little record deal and t- submitting my mixes from the stuff that I was finally doing. And then basically saying, this isn't good enough and you need to get, go to a professional to record. And from that point, we ended up going out to New York at that point after high school and after all that. And that's, I think, we ended up recording with John Neclerio, who did... Oh, okay, yeah. I, I've known John for for years. Yeah, John's a great dude. Um, so we he, he did all those great records that we listened to. So we went with him, and honestly, that was like what... As soon as I left that experience, I knew that recording was just on the books for me. That's just no question. Nice. So... You are in a band. When does it shift that you know you start becoming a producer instead of uh, the band dude? <laughs> I think when the moment when I'm sitting there and I don't have control over the sound or the actual song itself, um, there was always that moment of, yeah, I love playing live, but I judge so much on listening to a band's record. To me, that was always my love. Like I remember listening to... A CD in high school and I just I couldn't understand why this band sounded so good and it wasn't the songwriting and it wasn't anything to do with his voice or or anything it was just the mix was so solid I started understanding that that has so much to do with the shaping the band and why I, I fell in love with with certain music and and um, from that point it just stemmed into to always wanting to be in control you know having that control how did you get to the point that you got that control after we ended up recording out in New York, um, I then came home with, like I said, this this new love for understanding and feeling like I learned so much. And I ended up going to a little trade program up in Chicago um, at this school called the Music Industry Workshop, and it was just hands-on and um, it was an advanced class. And so it was just me and an engineer. Uh, it, I took it for about a year and a half. And that was, it was a great experience to learn so much. And after that, not only having a, it, it certainly helps to have a, a extremely supportive family who, who can kind of, kind of help me go into and know what to follow my dream and, and to know that I wanted to do this to help make it a reality, you know? I think you just touched on two things uh, in this that I think are really like the underreported things when pe- people talk to producers, which is one, that your early recordings are terrible. And, <laughs> and that drives you to get them better because you want it so bad. Oh, man, and, yeah. and two, that, you know, not everybody has a supportive family, but man, does that help. And I had the same thing of my father, you know, he dabbled in man, band management and I really could not have done what I did without having him, you know, pushing me on and saying, yeah, that's good. You should do this. Even no though. question. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it really, to me, just gives you that extra motivation, especially when he would go to a guitar show and he would start coming home with a random guitar cabinet, you know, 
and something that it was like it was a leslie cabinet but it was from mesa and like he'll bring home a Rhodes randomly and just say you know this will be great in your studio and he just knows and understands like different elements and and uh it's fantastic to have him to kind of be the overwatch watching eye i suppose you know kind of always there to kind of i guess be the silent contributor yeah kind of pretty much nice that's very um, cool. Yeah, and, and and the crappy recordings, man. That's that stuff. I don't think that'll ever stop. I, I lose sleep every night thinking about my my recordings. Yeah, well, that's that. That's what drives us to get better. Is that you know? It's so funny because like when you know you you describe creativity, it's like oh yeah, it's so fun. And then there's that part of it that it's like you can't always like when somebody's like, should I do this for a living? I'm like, well, do you want to be up at night thinking about a kick drum sound forever? Oh my gosh. <laughs> And I had to explain this to my wife that going through a mall, I actually listen to the music differently. If the song is playing, I will sit there and obsess over how great the song is because the snare sounds so good that it's making me just love this song. And she just can't conceptually understand how that's how I judge and, and listen and, and base all of my music. Yeah, I, I think it's very hard to relay that particular and i think it's like a funny thing because it is like you know if like you're a businessman you can look at other businesses and things but there's something particularly obsessive because of the infinite amount of possibilities of what you can do creatively today that like <laughs> it can drive you mad oh yeah absolutely with endless possibilities i mean like you said the fact that you could do absolutely anything makes it almost harder to finish your product i mean you always think that something could be tweaked and and, and changed a little bit or shaped to be a little bit better. Totally. So you mentioned your uh, studio. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your studio? Absolutely. When I was starting out early, I just kind of started out in our, our family kind of garage area where we converted into like a bedroom. And I slowly kind of took it over as from a bedroom turning into a band room and from a band room turning it into a studio. And then at, at one point it started getting so good, we actually made, made a small addition on onto the house. And and built um, a, a larger facility to kind of start taking it taking it serious. And from that point on, it was just it was just game on. I mean, it was let, let's let's just get everyone and uh, make make some records. And it, it was a fun experience. I mean, overall, the the growth from where I was then to now has just been so much fun. It's 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 actually crazy for me to think about years from now, like what I'll even think about this year. You know. Which is kind of the fun part, I guess. Yes, that, that, that is. So how long ago did you build the studio? This studio was built in 2011, the current facility. So basically through 2007 through 2010 was kind of that whole realm of just kind of recording all the bands from around the area and just friends and, and everyone you could. And so, so what area are you in? So I'm, I'm just southeast of Chicago in northwest Indiana. So kind of call it the the region or whatever and uh it's actually a great place because for me personally i just love not being in the city atmosphere which i know some label or not labels but studios some of the bigger studios are kind of in those downtown settings where it it feels chaotic and and kind of uh i guess intense at times I, I often say it, um, my studio is right outside new york city and um by like five blocks and oh. <laughs> But there was a thing of when I used to work in studios in the middle of the city, like the biggest problem is, is like there's so much distraction and people come by all the time. And it's like funny just leaving and going over the little moat around Manhattan. It's like, you know, people don't just pop in and you get to stay focused and it does make a difference. Oh, I mean, that was the problem for me forever was the studio that we have was in the house growing up, in my house growing up. And it took me forever to 
to move out because it was so easy and, and fantastic. I work here. Like this is a, a place that, you know, I live and I get to work. This is fantastic. But slowly I started realizing that it wasn't really a good uh, fit to constantly always have your work at home with you. Yes. So luckily, well, I mean, once I got married and uh, we just had a, our first daughter and we ended up getting our own place and it totally opened my eyes and I fell in love with having my own place and being able to come to work, focus on work and then being able to go home and leave that distraction, at least for the most part, physically leave the hard drives and stuff here, but just take it home mentally, of course. But mm-hmm. uh, being able to remove yourself um, is is a great, a great positive. I teeter back and forth on that one. Like, it's like, it's funny because I used to love the thing of like, I could just run over and like tweak a mix while I have an idea while I'm like, making some mac and cheese but then there's also like that nice thing of like man it feels so much more rewarding when i'm at home and to get away from it and you know with this i know you're very busy as well and it's just like you know there's there's a nice reward when you're so busy and you're working as many hours in this business that you know you get to go home to something good absolutely and that's like you said you touched on i mean that's the hard part is Yes, the best. It's it's fantastic being able to, like you said, make some food, or and you're listening to something that you did earlier in the day, and you hear something immediately. You say, "Oh my gosh, I have to go fix that." And when you're at home, you have to just embrace that moment and just kind of swallow it, and it almost makes it worse. But um, I was finding myself feeling like clients were getting upset with me because I put in ten hours, and I have people texting me about getting stuff back to them, and. I know that they know that I'm right downstairs. Yeah. So to me, it made it seem like I was feeling extremely lazy, but maybe I was. But to me, there had to be that, that cutoff to where, okay, you just need to relax for a little while, you know, and, and not be able to always go up there and make tweaks and send people stuff and just work all day long. Yeah. I, you know, it, there, there's a funny thing I, I said uh, recently after like going to the doctor. It's like, you know, when they think you have cancer, they're like, oh, we'll come back in two weeks. But if you say to somebody who's waiting for the kick drum to go up one dB, okay, two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the end of the world. And oh, just, man, I feel terrible. Absolutely. And it, it, it's so funny because, like, I, you know, I have the same thing. It's like it's in, this intense guilt, and I'll put in, like, these 18-hour days, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, that person needs that snare drum trigger just a little louder on the mix. That's exactly it. And when I actually make it happen, I think to myself so, – man, I feel like I should have done that weeks ago. And that only took me an hour or whatever. You know, it's just a constant battle. It's it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, work-life balance is one of the most interesting uh, concepts there is. So is there something in your studio you could tell us about that makes it unique? As far as gear-wise, I mean, I have a lot of the, the standards and, and classics. Um, something kind of funny that I ended up that's relatively unique was there's a guitar amplifier that one year we ended up renovating uh our basement here and I ended up finding an old public address amplifier behind the wall it was mounted there and I just was so curious and I ended up finding out that they ended up doing square dances in our basement wow back in that the is weird so they had a, a public address they had a PA system but it plugged in like a guitar and the output was just speaker so I ended up giving it to my amp guy and he had uh, the components internally changed so that there are a 4, 8, and 16 ohm output. And he turned that little public address amplifier into a guitar head. And it's only like a tiny little 7 watt, tiny little thing. And it's it, that thing is so cool. 
and the way that it shapes and tones, it's totally different than any other amplifier that I have. Um, so as far as unique, that's that's certainly something that I love to kind of toy around with. Nice. That is very cool. That That is a hell of a story. So <laughs> what instruments uh, do you play? Well, like I said before, I was kind of growing up playing the drums and, and bass and guitar. However, hmm. me playing drums only lasted for like six to eight months. Hmm. And I never retained my drumming capability from not playing for 10 years. And I, the moment that I sat down thinking, thinking it would be easy was quite a daunting moment when I start drumming and I have no idea what I'm doing. Currently, I'm just, I basically just play guitar. Mm -hmm. And by guitar, I basically mean I'm a very good rhythm player. But <laughs> yes. I, don't, I don't do any of the crazy stuff. I, it's one of those funny things that like when you start working as a producer all the time, it's just like that thing of like, you know, people are like, oh, what do you play? And it's like, well, technically when I was 19, which was 18 years ago, I was a pretty damn good drummer, but it's now been 18 years of me right. do, doing this every day, and I don't really sit down to play for pleasure very often, and I used to play keyboards in a band, and that I do a little bit on a record, but I'm honestly pretty rusty because that's not what I do most of the day. I'm great at the mouse and great at in MIDI inputting ideas with the mouse. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to you on that for sure. Um, so many times being in here, um, people will ask me or, or I'll say something where I, I hear a key part here. I just, you know, let's try to jam on a key part. And they'll look at me like, all right, let's see what you got. Mm -hmm. And I say, <laughs> well, well any, what, does anybody play keys? And they all say no. So I have to musk up and try to pretend like I know what I'm doing, which ends up me just typing in MIDI on, like you do probably on a, mm -hmm. just on the screen. It makes it way easier. Yeah, it, it, it is probably that nervous moment where you're like, oh, God, they're going to judge me. Like, I, I was killing it. They were so psyched, and now they're going to see how incompetent I am. Like, and I feel like that, that's, that, that should make me want to take piano lessons. Like, yes. I feel it would help me so much if I could just reach over and just know the chord progression and just nail out the chords in seconds rather than sit there clicking away and, and figuring out which ones are correct. Yeah, it's funny, you know, the, some of the best advice I ever got, and um, Alan Dow just said it on one of these podcasts, I don't know if it's airing before or after this, so I might be giving it away, but uh, he told me very early on, and he says it to every producer that he masters for, it's like, if you want to get better at producing, piano lessons is the single best thing you can do outside of just working every day, and I really do believe that's true, because, you know, you just, you learn to understand so much more, and there's so much complexity in what you can do on a piano more than any other instrument. I totally agree. Absolutely. And one of my buddies who's, I think, one of my favorite artists, an incredible voice. I mean, he is just a piano expert. I mean, that dude is incredible. And the the shapes and the, um, the way that he writes seems like his knowledge helps him so much to be able to throw in you know, a bar of, uh, of a seven and like start hitting these different chord shapes and you hear these bands who are labeling and naming which chords they play based on their fret position rather than hitting an A minor or a G major. They're just shouting out three, five, two. You know, it goes from, from one extreme to another. Uh, you kind of see how one feels very amateur and one feels very well thought out. Uh, I, I think that that's a great, great way of put of putting that. And yeah, so I obviously anybody listening to this, if you're young and you're trying to get in the game, I think that that's the best advice. And I wish I would take my that my this advice too. But then time never seems to get there where I have the time to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. On the scale of like you know like a Steve Albini who really doesn't like to work on songs, he'll like maybe give it a small opinion in the studio. And then like a John Feldman who like is known for rewriting 
band songs. If one side of that is a each side of that is a scale, what where do you find yourself on that scale? You know, I, I've actually thought about this so many times. Where I watch documentaries and I see interviews and I see people work with, and it's great. It's hilarious that you mentioned those two mm -hmm. because it's those two who I have kind of researched and, and thought about. Mm -hmm. I actually feel like I fall somewhere right in the middle because. The first time I had a buddy's band who I recorded for years ended up going out to LA uh, working with a, a bigger producer. He came back and was telling me about how he would hit a couple chords and all of a sudden the dude would just take the guitar, go into another room and show them how their song is going to be, which he basically wrote their song for them. Mm -hmm. And then the other extreme, like you said, from someone who just kind of lays back and lets the band do their thing, I feel like I'm, I'm almost more in that direction because so many times bands come in here with their opinions and how I do feel like my opinion um, comes from a good place, I, I don't try to offer too extreme of opinions because what they brought to me was most of the time very thought out. You know, most of the time they don't come in here and just, well, we jammed this last week and here's what we have so far. But, I mean, what do you think? And in those situations, yeah, because you have a little bit more leeway, I believe, to um, kind of break the songs down because they're not attached to anything either. It's, it's very uh, new to them. So... In those situations, you could probably get a little bit more in-depth, but for the most part, when bands are in here jamming and thinking about ideas or even sometimes writing parts on the spot, I kind of just sit back. Mm -hmm. I just kind of let them think about it for a moment, where maybe sometimes they do. They're sitting there, and in their head, they're thinking, you know, I'm waiting for his opinion. Um, I, I really do sometimes let them work that out, and then once they start getting close, then I'll kind of chime in and start and start uh, kind of offering maybe some small details that'll help shape what they what they thought of. Because I, again, being the artist, I, I really do want them to be as creative, come up with the parts that that they feel is correct. I, I agree. Uh, you know what? There's like another thing I notice, and I don't think it's true of every single producer who works with bands and songwriting. But there's many times I see like a certain producer, like if they like always are writing like all the harmonies for bands or they're that guy who rips the guitar out all the records start to sound the same and you lose the character of that band and i think that's also what sometimes messes up because sometimes i think like their sense of melody doesn't blend well with what made this band special in the first place and it's just a funny thing of like i'd much rather try to push somebody to get a good creative thing that they thought of and a good idea than be like okay, well, here's my thing, and this is what I like, and so here that comes again, and we've heard this on a thousand records, because I've been doing this for a thousand years, you know, and it just, it, it's, it muddies the waters, I think, sometimes. Yeah, I totally agree, and I actually fight with myself sometimes, because some things that I do production-wise will find its way into the song I did yesterday, or, you know, I'll just start bringing other elements that I do with other bands, and I start thinking to myself, oh man, am I doing too much of the same thing? You know, because I start falling in love with one thing, and then I bring it to another, and they end up loving it, which, for the most part, it's like, okay, great. But when you listen back sometimes, you think, could all of these bands just have a, you know, if you muted the vocals, would they sound the same? Mm. And that's, to me, when I have to question, okay, you need to, to rein it in, as far as having the same ideas for, for a lot of different clients, but... It's tough. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. It's also it's that pressure of feeling like you need to do something new, you know? I put I put that pressure on myself. I keep thinking, am I am I using the same tricks over and over, or do I need this to to try to just branch out and just do something crazy? Yeah, and I think like being conscious of that really does help you to grow. And like I, it's like that thing of like I always joke that uh, I listen to the most 
music of like anybody to not like any of it. Like I'm every week I open up RDO and I listen through the new releases pages of like any record that bands I know are talking about trying to get some inspiration, but then I hate all of it, but I'm like, that's also what keeps me though. So I can like be like, Oh, you know what? I've been doing this too much. Maybe I should try something more like that or more like this or a new plugin or something. So that you don't do that. And yeah. I think that's great, like, when you're talking about being conscious of that, I think it's so crucial to do it, and especially, like, you know, you and I also both work with pop-punk bands, and they're not known for being the most diverse creatively. And no, absolutely not. I mean, I totally agree. They come in with, um, they, they try to stick to their sound, and honestly, for the most part, it's me trying to break them of that, of that stereotype that they have, even for themselves, which... In, in many people's eyes is that's the producer side of it like you need to bring an element uh, that you feel w will help this band grow and become even better it, it is tough to sometimes you almost have to to convince them to to throw an organ behind a chorus or to to do this little guitar part because this part right here feels a little empty and it's like well that's how we play it live so we're cool with it and i'm like well that's cool you play it live like that that's fine i really hear something there and when i'm listening to it i feel like it's empty you know, I, I have these these thoughts all the time with with these guys, and that's kind of the battle that you play when you're when you're kind of constantly recording music. Yeah, yeah, no, and that, that that that's actually a great great example. That so with that, what what do you find you bring to records most often? Honesty. Oh, I like that. I really don't try to do too much, and if a song to me isn't the best song in the record, I'm I'm okay with that. In not every song to me needs to be, you don't, it, it is great. I do love, I do have many records that I love song one through song 12. But sometimes that song seven and song nine, I don't like for two months. And all of a sudden I love it. And just because in the, the overall scheme of the record, it, it fits beautifully. And I try to just let them make and create their own music, um, which is, I think it's it's just a good feeling to kind of throw in some some moments here and there where you where you help them expand. But overall, I just try to bring an honest like representation of of how they sound live, but amp it, just make it make it bigger. And you know, if I could deliver that for them, because you know you know as well as anybody, playing live is one thing. People there, they feel the music. The music's hitting them hard. It's loud. Listening to to a record is isolated many times quiet and focused where I feel like when people are in those moments that you that's where you need to kind of make sure all of your parts are are well thought and um and fit the the, the style yeah I, and you make a great point with this and I think it's one of those things too is that people when bands are like I want it to sound just like how we do live it's like well we have to remember that when you're live you're really fucking loud so that fills out a lot of sound right. and then when you're on earbuds if you're doing the same thing it's not quite the same just intensity like demo yeah. yeah if you want a glorified demo that's cool like but don't expect honestly great things like people will hear it and they'll think cool this is kind of what they sound like live that's cool but you want to give people an experience, in my opinion. You want yeah. to give them an experience to take away from what they just heard. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm a hundred percent with you, and like I think it's just like that thing of like you know most of us who get into this, it's like we do love that high of live music, but like I there's just like a thing of like I think it needs to go away that thing where people think that like. I totally get if you think your last record was a little too polished and you wanted a little bit more live, but 
thinking that you can do what you do live and then do the same thing on the record and that makes for good records in most genres is not the case. One thing if you're absolutely agree with that. Yeah. One thing if you're a singer songwriter playing acoustic, sure. <laughs> like do it live, do it one take, don't fill it out. If that's your thing, that's your thing. But that's not, that's not going to work when most heavy music or rock music. No, I mean, I, and I get a perfect example of that when bands come in here and they're in the live room and I mic them all up and, and we and they jam the tunes and and it's live and then you listen to what we then put out as a final product and you compare the two it's like okay here's what you actually sound like live if you did this and just recorded your instruments granted the the performances weren't amazing and, and spot on but just get an idea of live to a polished great sounding recording it's night and day i mean it changes the entire experience of what people are listening to a hundred percent agreed so with these dumb things bands do and think what's a common mistake you see bands do before they get to the studio it's a great question sometimes overthinking Ooh, yeah uh, sometimes they'll make changes to songs um in the last moment it's almost like my wife and i are big fans of chopped and right at the at the last moment people will start adding ingredients to their food just to do it when they don't need to it's kind of the same thing with your songs like you wrote them you figure them out sometimes yes yeah, some late changes and things here there can be can make the song better but sometimes they do overthink some parts um and and another is i guess to the other end of the scale lack of preparation um, yeah i mean obviously that's probably the worst if i've had situations where maybe I didn't do my background enough, had a band come in here, setting up the drums, we're getting everything ready to go, and you know, I asked the, I asked the drummer, so I'm like, how long have you played to a click? <laughs> and his response was, what do you mean? I basically just, like, this, this alarm went off in my head saying, oh my gosh, I never made sure that he knew that this is how this was going to go. I mean, we did, you know, an entire eight-hour session, and we did, basically did two songs of drums. So it was, that was almost a learning experience for me. It also kind of made me realize that I need to almost school these guys a little bit to being prepared to come in here and know how the process is going to go. Because typically when I have a return client, agreed, yeah, those sessions go so smooth compared to ones where you're meeting them for the first time and you have to get and understand each other's workflow. I feel like that's the biggest kind of learning curve because sometimes I'm ready to like quick fire takes with these guys like, all right, do it again, do it again, do it again. And I'll just hit record, and they're sit. They stare at me like, "Wait, oh, re oh, play? Yeah, let's do it. Like, let's go." You know. So it's just, which I wouldn't. It's tough. I mean, I feel like it's not so much a mistake of theirs, but it's funny because you know I love that a lot of parts of the music business have broken down, and that it's easier for like I think good music to get out than ever. But the one thing. I think is kind of tragic is that there's not this like experienced mentorship. Like, you know, when, even when I started out in the mid nineties, it was like, you know, I just noticed that like, usually a lot of the bands that were coming in, their manager or somebody gave them the deal of like, this is how we prepare for this. And now it's just like, it is a fucking free for all. And <laughs> You know, people just don't know basic things that, like, like even just how often when I tell guitarists, like, we change strings every day. Sometimes in some genres, like if you're doing some serious tech metal, we might change them twice in the day. And they're like, I change my strings every three months. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah great. 
Yeah, like he, he whips his guitar out. It's completely unset up. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is, is like, that you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of been my life mission. And one of the reasons I like to ask this question is I hope bands are listening and know before they go in with anybody to do exactly what you said there. It's like, yeah, you're probably going to be playing to a click track. Yeah, practice to a click. You know, I tell them that too. Just practice to a click. So you come in and you know the tempos yeah. you want. Uh, Instead of sitting here figuring out what tempo you want. Um, you did make an interesting point, though, in the overthinking thing that I'd like to go back to. Is that, do you have any advice for when people, you know, like that you can see a clear sign that you're overthinking something? Or is there anything... You yeah, I mean, I think every single time when sometimes there's so many moments where we're sitting on a chorus or we're sitting on a verse, either we just finish a guitar lead or maybe just a vocal melody, and you sit there and you listen and you listen and over and over and over, and you start thinking, am I crazy or is this great? You know, and then you listen, I basically say, move on, you're overthinking it. When, you, when we're done with the rest of the song, listen to it in a half hour. On, in one take, you'll know if it's right or not. And that's pretty much how I try to, to try to judge things. But so many times, yeah, I, I, get, I even get caught overthinking things where I'll hear something in my head and I'll, I'll, just, I'll have to go with it until it's, it's fully constructed to at least give it the chance. So then sometimes I feel like I could overthink that. But I feel like just as artists sometimes do overthink, it's, I've, I've got, I have to be granted or guilty of... of overthinking things as well i'm sure most engineers do yeah. uh, but i think that, that that actually is a great way of putting it so what's a smart thing you see bands doing while they're recording during the process paying attention um probably <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you so far of all the podcasts we've done this you, you, your, your first liars where you set it up are the best ones i've heard <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's so true so many times people are I mean, the, the recording environment here is pretty laid back. We have, uh, we're on five acres. We have a basketball court outside. It's, like I said, out of the city, kind of almost in a country environment. So it is very tempting for most of these dudes to, to not be in the room when someone else is working on something. Um, however, if someone does something that someone else doesn't agree with, you know, I can only give you the reason why we did it, but you weren't here when it happened. And we, that, what, what we wrote in that moment was organic and we both felt and we talked with a couple other people and we felt like it was great. Sometimes people are caught not paying attention to what's going on in certain situations and it could, sometimes, uh, it's just weird. That, that typically only happens when there's a lot of people and everyone has to have their own opinion. But for the most part, yeah, paying attention is one thing. But the only other problem that I relatively see is people coming in with 75% of songs where they come in, the drums are good, which for the most part, like... You know, I'll throw out options and suggestions for drum fills because I feel like drum fills are kind of always up in the air. Only small situations do I have drummers that are like, I know everything that I want to do. And in those situations, awesome, because I'm going to base everything on what you're doing. And But for the most part, like guitar leads or like second, like verse riffs and chorus riffs, sometimes people just aren't prepared for that stuff. To, to know it and like to know the technical, like... Do you know the strumming pattern? Because the kick is hitting this way, and you're hitting this way, and those don't work together. And some people, I mean, when you're jamming a practice, it's so easy to not even think of that. Because when you're jamming a practice, you're just having fun, everyone's just jamming. But no one really knows the, like, to match up specifically with the drum beat, or, you know, whatever. So a lot of times I shine the light on them, and show them how much better it sounds when everyone is just locked together. And... Which typically isn't isn't too big of an issue. People are usually pretty, yeah, pretty open to 
to hearing that and then understand, okay, wow, okay, that, yeah, that does sound good. Yeah, that's one of the more easy ways of showing, like, the before and after to a band of, like, strumming patterns and those small details, whereas, like, some of the other things, it's like, well, I can't show you what it would have sounded like if you played to the click for a month before coming in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, technically, I can after I edit the drums a little right. bit better. I mean, it's weird, too, because even drummers, if, they, if the drummer doesn't, hasn't had any experience playing to a click, to me, it, it seems foreign that someone who is a tempo setter has a hard time listening to a tempo because drummers are, I mean, in their minds, they're the tempo. You, everyone should be following them. So when they have someone else telling them what the tempo is, it's almost like a singer with their ego. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not how I want to play. You know, it, it takes, it's a, it's a different art. Practicing and playing to a click track is a very, I think, um, important part of any musician, guitar player, bass player, when I have clients in here who who really lock in and play to a click and they're just right on the money, I mean, the product shows. I mean, yes, do I have to sit here and edit people who don't play well to a click over and over to just make nudges and slides and, okay, finally it sounds good? Yeah, but when you hear the bands that, that are just tight, you could hear it and it sounds so good. And it's because these people are just locked in with a click track. Agreed. And you know, like one of the things I always say, like when people are like, I don't think we want to work with a click. I'm like, well, can you play to a click? Because any band who's ever made a good record not using a click could do it to the click if they needed to. But if you if you're saying I don't want to exactly. do a click, I can't. It's it, 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 that's <laughs> the recipe for disaster. Yeah, want and can't in that situation is is a big difference in end result product for sure. Yeah. So what happens when you and a band disagree about something? Well, for the most part, it, it's pretty it's pretty one-sided. I usually don't stick my nose in too far. Um, if they're adamant about it and that's what they wanted, then that's fine. In only small situations have I been adamant about something where it needs to sound like this part is 100% clashing with this or whatever, to where I, I just I say, listen, I'm going to put it this way, and if you don't want it at the end, then that's fine. But in, in the end of the day, I think it's it's their song, and you have to kind of just give them what the artist wants. I mean, my job is to make. I always explain this. I say my job is to make you make, give. It's to give you the best possible product that you that you have written for these songs. It's to, to take your songs and to, and then to turn them into this masterpiece that you, hopefully you envisioned. And sometimes you can shift and change certain part certain parts to to almost expand on what was great before. For the most part. Like I was telling, I mean, they are pretty open and, and cool with knowing my ideas. And I'll be honest, people have been much more open to my suggestions once I have gotten more popular. Mm -hmm. I feel like at the beginning, people, it, it's, it was not even close to like that. And recently, I, I find people are, are almost like, you know, that's good. I mean, I, I think he, he knows what he's talking about for this part. And to me, it's, it's actually weird hearing that because that's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it just because it sounds right mm -hmm. to me. Um, and you can disagree, that's totally fine, but um, this is my opinion, and most of the time it's either a vote. It's like, so here's what you think, and what do you guys think? You guys cool with that? And if they're all cool with it, it's like, all right, that's what we're going to roll with. And sometimes it's not what that one person wanted. Um, I've only had minor situations where that actually made someone extremely unhappy, but mm. to me, uh, that's when they listen back in years from now, I hope they won't remember that moment. I hope they remember just how good it is listening back. They, they won't remember these tiny details of, figuring out the the chugging pattern with the kick you know and stuff like that yeah that, that, that's a that's a, a good way of 
but I think I think it's it's like one of those things too where um when most we, we, you were saying like with like the trust thing of like bands start to trust you it is so much nicer but then there is the other side of the pendulum where I think really good records are made like my bands always you know like with the mix changes they'll feel like a little like oh we don't want to bug you too much and give you too many mixes I'm like challenge me like I'm challenging you challenge me and like the thing I hate the most is like the bands that are just like well you know what you're doing so we're just gonna leave it it's like well but there's I could rethink and maybe reevaluate some things if you have another perspective and like it scares me to death when sometimes like I send a mix back and then five minutes later I'm tagged in a Facebook comment like at the time that they listened to it once that they posted it and like I've had that happen a few times lately and I'm horrified by it right it's like I was honestly expecting changes and to that same statement that you said i've totally had that happen where i've, I've sent stuff over with knowing that i'm going to make changes it's like here this is just what I, I i have so far and they posted it yeah and i said oh my gosh i said and that from that point on i basically i almost will hold on to my mixes mm -hmm. now longer before showing them because unless unless i listen to it and i'm totally happy mm -hmm. i don't want anybody to hear it and so many times where I would send something over. I'm like, well, I know the drums are a little loud, but that's cool, you know. And then them having to hear it that way to me is like, it just it's just not, not a good representation of of what I plan to do with it in the long run, anyway. Yeah, I think like it's one of those things too. Is like you get objectivity when you do those changes. Like there's like I now like part of my process is like when I do the changes, it's like I hit play before I even read them most of the time, and I try to just see all right, what could I have done better than I hear it with fresh ears? And exactly. That's what I tell people all the time. I said fresh ears is your, it's like, that's your biggest test is to wake up in the morning, put it on your, your, in your car or listen to it where you listen to music and just compare it. You'll know immediately. And oftentimes I do. But like you said, some of my biggest and greatest moments I felt like as an engineer were bands who sent me back an email of three pages outlined specifically to the frequencies of that they wanted changed. And reading that was incredibly daunting and stressful and overwhelming to even open up an email and see a list of changes like that. I mean, that was like a first for me. I'm like, oh my God, was I way off? Or what happened? And then when you start listening to it, you're like, okay, yeah, that does, it sounds better. And they push you to even understand sonically, like what music should sound like. I mean, you're constantly evolving and constantly changing and you always think you have it, you could do a better mix than you did before. It, that, it just, it's inevitable. But um, to have people who challenge you to, to put out a better product and not just accepting what you give them because they think you're right, it, typically those are the, are the records that turn out the best. I 100% agree with you. And I think it, like that's the other tough thing is, is like you can't really give that as advice to a band because that has to just come to the person naturally that they have to here on a level, and um, I remember hearing Nigel Godrich, Radiohead's producer, uh, talk about that of like, you know, what makes every pro great producer he's known, what makes them good is that they've worked with people who are very good at challenging them, and that's what gets you to a high level. Absolutely. So let's talk about a bit, some common uh, production things that musicians would probably want to know about your productions. Um, do you use amp simulators at all in your productions? I actually recently just started doing this. I Before, I was just a... I, I always wanted my my records and songs to be as organic as possible. So I would always use real amps and, and just mic it up. And I started getting into trouble 
with not ever being able to fix things. Like if I thought a guitar tone was too muddy, that was it. And then the first time that I had someone come in here and tell me, well, the last place I recorded, we just went in DI, and then we just reamped it after we were done. And I thought to myself, what, what do you mean, reamping it? Reamping it where? <laughs> and and he, he showed me, and to me that that totally it changed everything for me because knowing that I could record and worry about the performance and then go back and worry about tones is fantastic. And then one example was on a record I did this year. We opened up and I got the eleven rack. That was like my first simulator that I got, and I was actually quite happy with it. I mean, it ha it opened up a lot of tools and has a lot of really cool sounds and. There's a, there's even a plugin in Pro Tools that I use often, just the 11 rack, the free one, the amp simulator. It sounds great if you EQ it and you compress it correctly. It, it sounds really good. I've got a, I've gotten into a situation where we didn't want to use that, but we tried over and over different amps, different mics, different cabinets to make it sound better than that, and we ended up getting frustrated because we just ended up going with the DI because. Our main goal is, is that the product sound as good as it can be, and we couldn't find anything to sound better than that. So, and that's that, just certain situations. Recently, I've been I've been trying some different things, but DIing it and using some uh, guitar simulators have have actually, I feel like, expanded the sound of my mix completely. Wow, very cool. How about sample drums? What place do they have in your productions? Well, I feel like I went from um, again zero. To, under, to, find, to, to learning about them and understanding drum samples to completely overusing them and then scaling it back and kind of understanding how it should sound or how they should be mixed in. I think that that's a, a pretty common trajectory. It's like the, uh, the new toy you play with a little too much and then you go, okay, all right. Yeah, then you listen back like a year afterwards and you're like, wow, that is just completely obvious. So recently, uh, drums... Um, specifically, I, I really kind of keep most of the organic drums on all the time. And I will, most of the time, sample their actual authentic kit. So I've gone through, like I said, the extreme of buying and trying to find all of these pre-made samples. Like, this is what's going to change my mix. This is what's going to give me the new and best sound. Because these samples, these are the best drum samples that you could find. And I would load them in, and to me, they would just sound overly processed, and I couldn't make them sound real. So I just started making my own. I started, I went in, I learned about how to create my own drum samples, and I would just get a snare, get it tuned, and after a band is done recording a song, I'll get them to, to sample that kit out, and we'll end up sampling that kit. I just kind of mix those in underneath the authentic the, the authentic kit. Nice. I think to me, it kind of it gives you that, that natural, organic, here, I'm a drummer, and the the punch that you get from sample drums to me is almost impossible to achieve through normal playing and just being able to mix sample drums to me is what is the reason I do it because I can't mix when I have your cymbal or your hi-hat blaring through the snare mic and that's the only thing that I hear every single time you hear it I try to gate it but as soon as I gate it as soon as you hit it it's just piercing in my ears you know so in those situations I guess it always kind of comes down to whether it needs it because I've recorded records where the drums are very soft and organic and in those in those moments never would you ever think about sampling the drums out i'm sure you know for pop punk stuff energy is everything yep like if he's hitting his snare too soft on a db part where he's like just jamming out and you can't hear the snare all you hear is a hi-hat then you know it's an issue yes so <laughs> to say the least yeah 
but that's like my common thing too i always tell people i'm like hit your hit your drums like the actual heads as hard as you can because it's only going to come through clear like the people who think that they're overplaying usually when they come back and listen they hear they're like okay that just sounds great um how about pitch correction what place does it have in your productions uh large mm-hmm. i'm a perfectionist and i can't stand when people sing on a tune and i don't think that i can sing in tune first of all so yeah that makes two just, of us i just think that I, I just think it's so necessary to, to to hear your product in a way that is is beautiful and, and correct. I mean, most of the time, yeah, these people are 95% on. For a lot of these bands, yeah, they want to come in. We don't want any pitch correction. We want it to sound super raw. I'm like, that's cool. We'll, we'll probably end up blowing your voice out because we're going to take five hours on a song because you want it to be perfect rather than get some of these takes that sound super organic and the feel was perfect like you you delivered that feel but you were just slightly flat you know and these are slight slight things that we could adjust to me i I almost worry more about emotion and clarity in in the words that they say almost more so than i do pitch because to me pitch is relative i could fix your pitch but i can't make you sound like you mean what you say I say a very similar thing, which I say is like, I've still never seen anybody who's developed that plugin that's called emotion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. To answer your question, I mean, I go between the, the standard Antares, kind of just process it here for a quick backup harmony, and then going to Melodyne to, to dissect and, and perfect um, main vocals. Um, and I use it relatively on almost everything that I do. I think it's, it's necessary. We are on the exact same page uh, uh, on the this. How long do you take like to take to work on a song? Well, I used to be, I think, a little bit more naive and think that we could track it, like we could work on a song in, in a nice eight-hour session. Um, and I've quickly learned that to get the product that I'm becoming more used to putting out, I feel like, honestly, I like to work, I like to have two full days in studio to do one song at, at on average. But as far as like the recording process of working on one song, I actually do like to kind of take the songs in chunks. I don't like to work on too many um, different songs at the same time. You know, like when people are recording records or EPs, um, sometimes I actually like to space it out. We're, yeah, we may do the drums in one chunk, but from there on out, let's just kind of separate this out. Let's break this down. Because when I'm focused and listening and, and really trying to work on one song, I feel like I, I try to get into that song and if if we're done with the rhythm guitars for that song and we want to jump to the next one it's like oh man i just kind of was getting into that i am on a very similar page and years ago i switched to the same thing of like let's focus on just this song today and put as much thought into it for this period and not be thinking about 20 songs at a time because exactly right and to me once being able to take the to go from recording bands who come in and try to do okay we're doing five songs in five days to all right, we're doing five songs in eight or nine days, to me, changes everything. You, the, the moments and times you don't have to sit there and focus on tone or to focus on certain things, I feel like are the detriment to some of these songs because listening back, it's like, oh man, that guitar part doesn't sound right or that vocal need, needed to extend in a different timing. Like the timing wasn't correct. Like we didn't even have time to go over that. You know, and, and having ample time for each song, I think only speaks to the product that it's going to be at the end. And yeah, sometimes when you sit there at the end, you can easily after sometimes a 12 hour session, you're like, this song is done. Like, this, this is perfect. I think to have the right amount of time and, and to dedicate that time to each song is, is key. Yes. Uh, I, I think, you know, if there, there's a takeaway 
any musician could have from this question is it's, it's just so funny. Like I, I bands so many times want to think about like, you know, can I just get this done when it's like, really, it's like, there is an amount of time where, you know, there is too much time, but there is a key amount of time for every song and everybody's work that like, you can get that song to be ripe, not stale and not overcooked, just perfectly in the middle. And Budgeting to do that is crucial for making a great piece of art. And, and, where, and where are you at? I mean, I'm kind of I'm, I'm typically between the day and a half and two day range for a song. So it's interesting for me since um, so Mike, my co-producer, and I we work on the songs at the same time in two separate rooms. So Mike does all of the um, drum editing, vocal uh, editing, and he tracks the guitar and the bass, and I work on the drums, the song, and the mix. So, and then I oversee the guitar and bass while he's working on it, since obviously that's the longest of anything. Yeah. And uh, so we do about a day, because that turns to two days, since it's two of us working for 10 hours. But I'm, it's very similar. Like, it's like, there's something about a day to maybe a day and an hour or two the next morning, um, like somewhere between 20 to 23 hours, that really, I think, like, makes me feel like, all right, we got this, we've thought of everything, and we haven't nitpicked this to the point that it's just stale and boring. I agree. Being on the, the, on the solo train of doing it myself, two days where I put in about nine-hour days, between that day and a half of around 14 hours to you know, the 18-hour mark, I feel I'm, I'm pretty usually comfortable with where we're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, I'm, I'm only certain situations to where if there was like a very long song, and it needed much more than what the other ones needed, would that one take more time? But for the most part, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at somewhere around that yeah. shy 20-hour mark. Yeah, average, average pop-punk song, that's great. And, you know, obviously if you're um, attempting to equal the Flaming Lips, we can talk about doing a lot longer, but... <laughs> so, tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Well, see, that's a, that's a great question, and I actually took me a while to, to think of this and actually when I thought of it it was almost so obvious I actually had a very good friend of mine whose mom just found out that she was terminally ill and it was it was a very emotional situation and um, my friend and his mom have always sang they've always bo- both been very good singers one day he came to me and said hey listen my mom and I would love to come in and sing a duet together and so we ended up scheduling this time and at the, at, the, at the time, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do this favor. Not a problem. I'll squeeze you. Like, selfish enough, at, at, at a moment, I thought, well, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. But, okay, like, let's get him in because I was so crammed with other stuff. And then when the moment comes and you play the song and they're both out there having this moment, I feel like which is bigger than anything that's happening. Yeah. Where they know that this is a moment that they're always going to remember to sing to one another, to sing together, to be harmonizing and just to be smiling and, and having this, this moment that in years down the road, when they listen back, they'll just smile and, and know and, and to remember how happy they were. And it was such an emotional and, and great moment to see. And when I, I'm sitting here just watching this happen and it made me feel so good because 
it made them it brought such a, a happiness and and wonderful experience to them it just it just it made me feel fantastic so that was like one of the greatest moments that i've had recently that that is a, a, pr- a pretty great and a nice story you know, it's it's so funny so many of so many of these when i think back and like even my own if i was dancer I'd be, it's like a pretty like selfish thing and that's that that, that is very very cool so conversely what was one of the worst moments you have and what did you learn from it well, I mean, I've had a couple of, of strange situations. I mean, I've had bands who would nickel and dime me. Like, we, they didn't want to pay my per song rate, so then I would get them in here for, okay, I'm like, all right, we'll just do a per day rate. And they're cool with that. And there was, there was confusions where they, they thought it was one price, and this one guy it's like, no, I was talking to him about this. And it got, it got really strange, and we finally got that all settled, and then everything was good. We come in, they come in, they, we're literally listening to final mixes. And I've had these guys in here for probably, mm-hmm. I would say, 10 days at that point. It's just on and off throughout maybe six months. Like, they just, they're local and they just kind of popped in. And all of a sudden, they, I get one of the worst text messages I've ever received talking about how they didn't believe my heart was in it. And these songs don't sound anything, any better than the demos they received the first week. And, you know, they feel like they got stiffed and all this stuff and it it, it it took me back and then i had this this and it was like during a big moment it was like during this the super bowl and like supposed to be having fun with your friends and i'm sitting there with like a pit in my stomach thinking like how does someone think this like that is never true like we were sitting there one of the dudes turned to me and said this is the best thing i've ever heard and someone else in the band that sent me something like that i was like oh my gosh and it was so funny and then randomly like two weeks later i had an engineer from across town hit me up and he's like hey do you know this band and I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, I'm taking them to court. Wow. They had me send all of their files out. And that dude, wanted, they wanted him to mix it. And he mixed it all for them. And then they ended up saying it's not good enough either. And they didn't pay him. It was like this insane. And I couldn't believe it. And it just kind of verified. It's like, okay, like these guys are just crazy. Like it's it's people that who can't be reasonable or understand what product that they're getting. Yeah. I, I think that, that that is a tough thing is that like, you know, you, we are trying to live up to somebody's imagination of what they imagine, but there's also a point where you have to be sane about that and realize that, like, if you don't conve- convey your imagination and know how to get that across, and it's like, we can take you some of the way, but we can't take you all of the way if you're not a good communicator. And obviously, if they're having those problems, that's a that's a rough one. Yeah, and honestly, I feel like overall, it's probably um, communication with people. With- members and stuff like that i've actually gotten into trouble myself with i feel like i i need to start communicating even more with my clients i feel like sometimes i leave them in the in the dark too much where i'll see their texts or i'll see their emails and i'll take that in and be like okay i gotta do this but just to text them back or to verify hey man i'm on it means way more to them than than i initially realized kind of back then you know so that's that's one thing that i feel like i've i've definitely kind of stepped up on but Overall, I mean, I typically, I'm such a laid back person. I usually don't really confront people on certain things. It's, it's usually relatively laid back. Like I don't have too many issues for the most part ever. Well, I, th- I think that's the thing is anybody who gets to the point where they're being interviewed for this podcast, that's usually is the case is you don't have a lot of issues and that's why you've gotten this far. Because if you have a lot of issues and you're fighting with people all the time, you're usually not, you're usually out of business pretty fast. Yeah, no kidding. Like I, I often say it, it's like, you know, you want, you want to see the test of somebody like, it's great that this person just had a good, good first record, but you know, if four years 
I, I you know, I've seen in the uh, time I've done this, how many, so many studios come and go, and it's like a lot of people never pass that four year mark, four year mark because they're assholes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, seriously, and it, it, it to to no surprise that person is now not in, in a band, and the rest of their band is now calling me to to book a new a new session. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like just just uh, just hilarious. Just things work themselves out. Speaks volumes when you're rehired by the same bands over and over again. Yeah, I mean that's honestly that's got to be. I don't know if it's just me, but that has to be the majority of my clientele for the most part. Start especially starting out and growing was bands who love the recording, and then that band would break up and start two bands. Yep. And I would end up recording both of those bands, and things like that constantly kept happening. We have a joke around the studio of when we see one of the bands we work with. Uh, it's like your your first instinct is like, oh, that sucks. I love those guys. And the second instinct is like, two new bands, three new bands, high five. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> so tell me about a record that you did that changed your life. Well, a record that it's, – it's tough for me because I feel like that's such a, mm-hmm. a deep question to me. I'm like, what, what changed my life? Um, and I don't know if anything has ever changed my life, but I feel like – yeah, okay. thinking about it, I thought, well, what was the record that has, that has meant most to me? And to me, it's honestly just the most recent Knuckle Puck record, only for the fact that that was the first time that I've ever been delivered about like five weeks in studio with a band. Oh, wow, yeah. And that's never happened. We've, I mean, even me doing the first uh, or that full length for Real Friends. They came in here and they were just worried about tracking. We tracked it in like 13 or 14 days and it was done. And I almost feel like I didn't even get as attached because it felt like it was so down to business and it was just, we pumped it out and everything sounded great. But like to have five weeks with a band, you you become attached and you feel like you're just part of that music. And that was the first time to me that that, that ever happened. And which was a great experience. I mean, that's I, th- I think in all in all, that's probably the one that um, has has reached me the hardest. Yeah, I, I think there there is that thing of like when you get to live a record that long, it really is like it it sticks with you. Anything that you sit there for like a month slaving over, it's like I love to just point back and think of those records. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully, that's just a uh, something that's just going to snowball and kind of keep. It, it, it really opened my eyes to understand what it takes to go into a record. I mean, honestly, like I'll never think again if a band wants to do, you know, 10, 11, or 12 songs that two or three weeks is enough. I mean, to make something that's you're going to remember, like, no. Like, you really need to, we need to demo these. We need to pre-pro them. Let's talk about them. Let's sit down. For Sometimes we could waste two days just talking about certain parts. And you know the the result is good. The record's been been really well received, so that proves the, the the theory. And of course, just me being an engineer, just like everyone else, I listen to it now and I I get sick to my stomach of all the changes I'm making. Well, this is like uh, on this podcast, like everybody talks about. It, it's like you're sick to your stomach, and then like maybe a year or two later, you're like, all right, I, I think I'm okay with this. I think I'm it okay with this. Is. I can listen to it again. Like. I, I often joke like when I walk into like a bar and like one of my records comes on, if it's like been like six to nine months, I'm like literally like in the bathroom, like with a fake gun in my mouth. And then like, then it's like a record that I did five years ago. I'm like, man, I'm good. Let me give me some nail polish to paint these nails. Yeah. Right. 
Exactly. So tell me about um, a record that you listened to from something you didn't do uh, that's perfect and what makes it perfect? That was a great question too. Uh, again, I always come from that, that mindset where the recording is everything because I feel like great songs could easily be an average record, but I've heard average songs be, become a great record because of the production and like just how well everything was recorded. And to me, that changed for me. But the first time that I like fell in love with that was Jimmy Eat World's Futures record. Ah, yeah. One of my favorites, too. Yeah, I mean, from start to finish, emotionally and just dynamically and the feel that that whole record brought was the first time I thought, this is a perfect record. And since then, oddly enough, the, their Chase This Light record to me was even sonically better. I love Oh, yeah, I agree. And it was so good. Those records to me just proved to me what my thinking of how important it is to get the right sound and to have it mix and sound correct. You know what's so awesome about those two, two records too? Have you ever heard the, uh, you know how like the first version they did of Futures didn't come out with Mark Trombino? Have you ever heard how those songs sounded with those? I think I, you know what, it's kind of funny because back when like Napster was was a thing, yeah. I couldn't understand why a version, I downloaded the same version of the record and one record sounded great and one sounded like absolute yeah. garbage. <laughs> like. I didn't understand what was happening. It was like two different versions of the record. But yeah, like you know, it's a, it is funny. It's like you know, those records, th those guys just have so much more of a craft than so many other bands. And it's like always so funny. It's like you know, like when bands are like, "What can we do? What can we do? What can we can do like we'll just go to this producer." It's like, man, like be fucking Jim Adkins. Listen to all those interviews he does on things. Like I, I would give an arm to interview that dude about like how he developed what he does because like he's just a pro that's what i'm saying is like some people think that these songs don't take like tons of thought and the songs that turn out so well are the ones that are just i don't know maybe they wrote them in a very emotional or a, a stressful time but like there's certain songs where you can just feel has a different and better vibe than other tracks when when you hear Jimmy World and some of the stuff that they put out, it just seems like every, like so many of their songs have such a great, impactful meaning, it seems like. Like, whatever whatever vibe that they're singing about, man, I feel that. Yeah. And it's just so good. So good. I 100% uh, agreed. I, I am right there with you on those two. So tell me about five of your favorite records and your musical growth. Well, we just, we just listed two of them. Um, and those were almost more engineering growths, almost more than musical growths, but I still love them so much musically. But for me, it's just going back to what most people do is going back to kind of like your roots, like what made you fall in love with music. And to me, it was it was the height of Blink-182 and Green Day, but then it, it, it turned into Taking Back Sunday, even like Story of the Year, bands like Armor for Sleep and things that to me when I was growing up, they, I thought these bands were huge, and which some of them are now, but even more so, like those records are what really changed my perspective of music. It made me write in a very specific direction, and it's like this is what I want my band to be. To me, like the old Taking Back Sunday records and the first Story of the Year record, Page Avenue, was like, that was, I listened to that for a solid eight months straight. I don't think that came out of my record, my, my CD player. And same thing with like... Same page with that, that record and the one after I, I listened yes, to. Yes, then there was a slow decline. <laughs> yes, uh, ag agreed. But overall, I mean, and like I said, the Jimmy Eat World records, and 
th those are just so fantastic. And I think one that had a huge influence even more so was probably the first starting line record, The oh, Say It Like You Mean It, was... Yeah. I remember listening to that in my car. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just incredible. I, and just being so jealous of that record at the time. I'll tell you, there was so many years of my life, I just tried... After, you know, I, I talked to Mark Trembino when he told me he mixed that record in his apartment on just in Pro Tools, I just sat there for years trying to get my Pro Tools mixes to sound like that, and exactly. not, not succeeding at it. Right. <laughs> no, totally. There's just it's, such a good feeling, production, tones, and everything on that record is just so right. Yeah, I feel like one of the one of the records kind of that hit me the same way was, actually, now I'm learning that was some of their fans didn't like this record the most, but was New Found Glory's Catalyst record. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I will tell you, everyone I knew hated that record, and I was right there with them. It was so weird, and to me, because I, I, I almost classed myself, classified myself as like a late Newfound Glory like lover. So I got into Sticks and Stones way late, and it was right around the time that It's All Downhill From Here came out. And to me, that being like one of my first um, listens to the band, I actually fell in love with that record first and was like blown away by that record and then i started going backwards and falling 10 times more in love with the band which was kind of crazy because i still and i think that's why catalyst to me has a soft spot as like an amazing record is because that's what got me into them somehow which is i think a, a weird story of how someone yeah. likes newfound glory because usually always around and it made me i think appreciate those other songs so much more you know cause it was it was just more of that 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 pop punk vibe it was just a little bit grittier a little bit dirtier and catalyst was so clean and it felt like it was a different direction for them they were trying to be a little bit maybe cleaner and poppier or something it's it's funny with that record because when you hear records today when they're just triggers of like slate drums and everything it's the overcompressed yeah. like thing it's so funny because that was the first record that did that sound and that no one did that for years and now that sound is so ubiquitous. It's so popular. Yeah, it's, it's, it was really funny like the last time I heard that record because I will say this, while I don't like that record, my favorite New Found Glory song is on it. I went back and like I was A-being a mix to it. I was like, wow, this is so funny. This sounds like every record today and it's so old. Uh, it, that's exactly because I remember that being, when I heard that record, I thought to myself, how do I get a mix to sound like that? That's, this sounds great. And... I always reference, I always for such a long time use that record for a reference. That's a hard mark to um, hit, man. It is. Yeah, you strive for yeah. greatness, right? So tell me what's your favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about it? Okay, so I, I love this question too because I have been extremely uninspired by almost everything that I've heard and there has not been anybody of recent times that... I feel like, oh my gosh, like this is my, this is, I love this. Until like two, like three months ago when I heard the new 21 Pilots record. Oh, interesting. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard it yet. Oh my gosh. Do yourself a favor. It is so good. I will. Yeah. It is so good. I couldn't even believe it. When I'm listening to it with a friend, he's playing it and he's like, dude, have you heard this yet? And I'm like, no, but it's like going and jamming. It's cool. I'll check it out. And typically it's just the same old stuff. Like, it's nothing I'm going to listen to in my car. It's probably nothing I'll listen to at home. And as he's jamming it, every single song was unique. It was Every song was new. It wasn't the same as the song before it, but it was just as good or, as, or better than the song before it. And then I, I finally had the time to listen to it all the way through. And I'm like, holy cow, this is just so good. Because it brought me back to those Jimmy World days where it's like dynamically, 
nothing's the same. You don't get to track four and you're like, all right, this is the same thing. It's it's constantly changing. And it, it almost made me understand, okay, not every song on the record needs to be the exact same mix. Like, these songs are mixed so diversely throughout the record. Is it one mixer or is it a bunch of different people mixing? You know, I actually don't even know if I researched that. Because I'm going to do it for us right now. Fantastic. The single that they put out on the radio, I don't know the name of it, but the single they put on the radio sounds like 180 degrees from the other songs, in my opinion. Like one sounds um, like OK Go or something, like that type of a mix. It sounds very indie and kind of um, just more of that poppy indie vibe. And then they go to like other songs that have like heavy beats and kind of this like darker sound, but it still sounds awesome. So I, I don't know. I know they had a, a, a list of actual producers. The list was probably, I think, two or three different producers. I looked that up, but I didn't see the actual song credits to know if... It looks like the, all, the whole mix is Neil Avron, interestingly enough. See, that's I, I thought I saw just a, something like that, where it was just... And th that's pretty interesting, too, because he also did Catalyst. No kidding. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? But yeah, it does look like there's a couple different producers on the record. That's hilarious. That that's why it's like, wow, I don't know, it just sounds so good. And it's like, oh, Catalyst, it's pretty funny. Yeah, he's, I mean, I, I have to say, he's done some of my favorite mixes over the years. Like, I, it, the two yellow card records ago I, has just, like, one of the best mixes I've ever heard. And, like, that's another one that I just, like, I'm always trying to hit that mark and never do. That's kind of funny that you say that because, I mean, I don't even think... Even back when I heard the Catalyst CD, I don't think I ever even looked up who did it. Yeah, I, I you know, that 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 guy is a god. He he he's he's been he's been making the pop punk and uh, even pop hits for so long. Yeah. Um. So what yeah. have you been working on lately that you can tell us about? Um. Well, I've I've actually been working. Man, it's been crazy. I feel like things are just kind of rolling through so fast. It's still kind of the same thing, man. I just get so many pop punk stuff, and for how much fun and. An enjoyment I get out of it. I love it when, like last week, I had this heavy rock band in, mm -hmm. like very Breaking Benjamin meets Metallica. Oh wow! No, like not too much like screaming, but it was just like heavy singing and just that vibe. And I was totally jamming it. Like I thought I was like having a great time. And so that it was awesome to have that that change of pace. Um, but I just recently finished up mixing the new. Rarity record, which is coming out on Rise, I believe, early next year. Awesome. I just finished the new Bonfires EP, which I believe they just signed with Bad Timing Records. Yes. And um, they're going to be releasing that stuff, which they told me that the release date wasn't till early in the spring, and I'm like begging them to go and remix some stuff. Ah, yeah, that one. I don't know if that's going to to swing. So f f funny, I I just did that to Zach and Thomas too on a bad timing release. So between the two of us, they're probably fed up with our shit. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So I'm I'm actually waiting to hear uh, confirmation if I could do anything. But I just I saw they released something yesterday, so I feel like I'm kind of shit out of luck on that. But um, I just I just I just finished that up. I'm trying to think of who else. I've had so many like local stuff kind of run through that I've almost been playing catch up with so many people. Um, but those two kind of, to me, kind of stuck out. I actually had a band in here this summer that was a band when we first started out Asteria back in 2005, 2006. I recorded their first two EPs. They were like, they were almost like my guinea pig. Mm -hmm. And it's this band called, uh, their, their name's Harvey. They came in randomly. They hit me up last, last Christmas and they booked time and they just randomly came in and did a full length out of nowhere. 
uh, out of songs that they wrote since between like 2007 and you know 2012 they all live in different parts of the country now they've never practiced and they all just flew in and over the course of six weekends and we put a record together actually turned out to be one of my favorites of the year and i asked them like after we were done i'm like so what's the what's the plan and they look at me with just like what do you, what do you mean mm-hmm. like this is this is it like we thank you like this is great and they basically just did it for nostalgia reasons. And I, I'm even, I pushed it to Johnny. I'm like, Johnny, get this to somebody. This is just too good. Hmm. But and we'll see how that goes. But that, that, to me, one of my favorite projects so far this year. Really, really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Well, dude, this was really awesome. Thank you so much for doing this with, uh, for us. That is the end of my questions. Awesome, dude. And I, I really appreciate it. I, I had a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.